Reading this morning is Genesis chapter 27, verses 26 through 40. Then his father Isaac said to him, Come near and kiss me, my son. So he came near and kissed him, and Isaac smelled the smell of his garments and blessed him and said, See, the smell of my son is as the smell of a field that the Lord has blessed. May God give you of the dew of heaven and of the fatness of the earth and plenty of grain and wine. Let people serve you and nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you and blessed be everyone who blesses you. As soon as Isaac had finished blessing Jacob, when Jacob had scarcely gone out from the presence of Isaac, his father, Esau, his brother, came in from his hunting. He also prepared delicious food and brought it to his father. And and he said to his father, let my father arise and eat of his son's game that you may bless me. His father Isaac said to him, who are you? He answered, I am your son, your firstborn Esau. Then Isaac trembled very violently and said, Who was it then that hunted game and brought it to me? And I ate it all before you came, and I have blessed him. Yes, and he shall be blessed. As soon as Esau heard the words of his father, he cried out with an exceedingly great and bitter cry and said to his father, Bless me, even me also, O my father. But he said, Your brother came deceitfully and has taken away your blessing. Esau said, Is he not rightly named Jacob? For he has cheated me these two times. He took away my birthright, and behold, now he has taken away my blessing. Then he said, Have you not reserved a blessing for me? Isaac answered and said to Esau, Behold, I have made him lord over you, and all his brothers I have given to him for servants. And with grain and wine I have sustained him. What then can I do for you, my son? Esau said to his father, Have you but one blessing, my father? Bless me, even me also, O my father. And Esau lifted up his voice and wept. Then Isaac, his father, answered and said to him, Behold, away from the fatness of the earth shall your dwelling be, and away from the dew of heaven on high. By your sword you shall live, and you shall serve your brother. And when you grow restless, you shall break his yoke from your neck. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, you are great and greatly to be praised. You are the only God above all gods. You are the King of heaven and the Lord of earth. You are the mighty God, and I pray that we would see that today, and I pray that we would submit to you today. Father, this story confronts us with the fact that you are who you are, and you do things as you please to do them, and you leave us to deal with who you are, Father. You leave us either to humble ourselves or reject you, and I pray that by your grace that we would humble ourselves, Father. I pray that it would seem as good news to us that you're great and big and mighty and strong and totally sovereign over the process of salvation. Oh God, please help us. In our flesh we don't understand, and even in our spirit we might not understand, but I pray that in our hearts you would give us the faith and the trust and the, the childlike sense of dependence to just 
believe you for who you are, to submit to you for who you are. Father, this is all about you, and I pray now that you would exalt yourself and build up your church in the mighty name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. God is God, and we are not. Amen. The fundamental principle of life. God is God. We are not God. God is at the center of everything. We are not at the center of everything. It's not all about us. It's all about Him. Life centers around, revolves around, begins in, ends in God and not us. I do believe that getting this right is the key to life, the key to everything. I believe it's the key to joy, the key to success, the key to wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. You remember the proverb says? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of everything. Getting this straight, that God is really big and I am not so big. God is really great and I am not so great. God is at the center and I am not at the center. That is the key to everything. As we learn to see God as He is and see creation in light of who He is and see ourselves and take our place in that light, that's when lasting joy and eternal life begins. And only then. Often, I know in my case, not only once, but many times, this, this fact, this reality has taken confrontation for me to deal with. But what I know is that dealing with this fact is the key to life and the key to joy. It might not sound like good news on the face of it, but it's actually very, very good news. It's easy for us to say that God's God and we're not God. He's at the center and we're not at the center. It's easy to understand it. The problem is it's hard to live by that principle. At least it is for me. And the reason it's hard for me to live as though God's in the center and I'm not at the center is because I'm a sinner. And as Augustine said, the nature of sin is that our will, it, it was designed to go toward God, but in sin our will bends back in toward ourselves. We just have this innate tendency, this propensity to make life about us and to make decisions as though we're at the center. We know that we're not God, but we live as though we are because we're sinners. And it makes it very, very difficult. Some of us are arrogant about this. We're brash. We're open. It's easy to see. Others of us are very subtle, quiet, hidden. But in our own ways, every one of us is living as though we're the Lord of our own lives. We might believe that God is God, but we find it hard to live in that light because we're sinners. Sin is like a a kind of Novocaine. Sin has been injected into our souls and our minds, our ears, our hearts, our wills are dulled to God, and we don't see and think and feel it as we ought. We don't. You probably all had Novocaine at some point in your life. Amen? Tell me if you have. You, you felt that numbness in your lip, you're drooling, you don't even know you're drooling, you, you don't, you can't feel anything, right? Now, in that case, it's a blessing, because then you don't feel the pain of dentistry. But when the Novocaine of sin is injected into the soul, it's not a good thing. But, but we don't seem to perceive it. We think we're thinking right, we think we're feeling right, and we're not. We're not. We're sinners, and sin really distorts the way that we see God, the way we see ourselves, the way we see others. But the good news is that through Jesus Christ and by the grace of God, He's like the antidote to Novocaine. He's the anti-Novocaine. And when you believe in Christ and He comes into your life and by His grace He opens your eyes to see something of the grace of God, the beauty of who Jesus is melts away the numbness inside of us. We begin to think as God thinks and feel as God feels and see as He sees and hear as He hears and act as He acts. 
grace pours over the life of a sinner and it restores us to be as God created us to be. But that process of salvation starts with a confrontation. God is God. You are not God. Humble yourself before Him and you will begin to see and feel and think and act as though you were, as you were created to do. We're going to deal with a story today that if we're paying attention to it, will really rock our world. It has, for me in the past and this week, it's been one of the deepest struggles of a sermon I've had in a long time, just because the story is just, God is just being God. He's bold about it. He makes no apologies, and there's not even any explanations. And I know that the story is designed to have this effect on us of a, a sort of confrontation because Paul takes it that way in Romans 9. And he, everything he said in Romans 9 is built on this story. God is God and you are not God. And who are you, O man, to speak back to God? Paul is dealing with this story. So I know that the effect of this story is intended to jar my soul and say, Charlie, really? No, I'm serious. You are not God. He's God. And so I pray. Now, I've been praying all week long as I've been pressing this, the truths of this chapter into my heart, just for its own sake, not because I had to preach, but just pressing the Bible into my heart. I've been praying, God, please, just humble me before You. Just please teach me how to receive You as You are. Maybe I'll understand later, but for now, just humble me, Father. Let me be humble before You of all things. That's what I want. And I pray that for us now. I pray that as we hear the story and later reflect on some of the implications of it, that we'll just humble ourselves before the Lord. As I said last week, 15 years after Isaac and Rebekah had the twins, Esau and Jacob, Abraham, the great father of faith, died. He was a great man of God, and now he passed off the scene, but the Word of God remained forever. The Word of God is never about the man, it's about the Word. And even though the, the great man of faith on the earth at that time was now gone, God still endured. And so He appeared to Isaac. You remember last week? He appeared to him twice. And He reiterated the covenant that He had made with Abraham. He essentially said to Isaac and to us, listen, the, the old man is dead, but I am not. The promise lives on. The blessing lives on. I will work salvation out for the nations of the world. And I will do it through you now, Isaac. What I gave to your father Abraham, I now give to you. And the second time that God appeared to Abraham, He also planted him in a physical place. That that uh, I mean Isaac, if I just said Abraham, I meant Isaac. He planted Isaac in a physical place, and Isaac called that place Beersheba, or the well of the covenant, the well of the oath. The place where God had spoken to him. The place where the king uh, Abimelech had made a treaty with him. In that place, God planted him in that place. And as I said, the key to that planting was this phrase, Fear not, for I, God Almighty, am with you. The presence of God is what secures the promises of God through the trials and temptations and storms of life. And Isaiah went, Isaac went through a lot of that. He went through a lot of that. But through it all, the presence of God secured him, planted him, rooted him in a place. And that wasn't only for his blessing, it was for the blessing of all nations, including us who believe. That promise was about us and not only him. Well now, many years have passed by and Isaac's an old man. A lot of time's gone by between the end of 26 and the beginning of chapter 27. We don't know exactly how old Isaac was. Some old Bible scholars in the 1800s and early 1900s guessed about 135, 140 years old. But the truth is, we really don't know how old Isaac was. The point is, he's old. 
The Bible said that his eyes had dimmed to the place where he couldn't see anymore, so he was blind. And I think from a few of the details in the story, he was a little bit senile. He was easy to fool. He wasn't quite in touch with reality as it was. The point is, he's old. He's waited many, many, many years to pass on the blessing to his son, I think, because he was waiting for Esau to turn around. As I explained to you last week, when it says Esau was a man of the field, that means he was wild. That means he was not submissive and obedient. He didn't stay home and take care of business. If any of you who have had a child like this or know of people who have had a child like this, this is the wild one who you can't control, who's going to do whatever they want to do no matter what you say, no matter what you do. This was Esau. Jacob, however, I mean Isaac, however, had bonded with him, and I think Isaac wanted him to have the blessing. And in my mind, the reason he waited until he was so old to give the blessing was because he was hoping that this kid would turn around. I think. He's old now. He knows he might die any day, so he says, I better give the blessing. He calls Esau to himself, and he tells him that. I'm old. I'm well advanced in years. I don't know how many days I have left on the earth, so do this for me. It's a great Minnesota kind of thing to say. I want you to go out into the woods and kill it and grill it for me, man. Go out there and hunt something. Cook it up for me just the way I like it. Let's enjoy one more great feast together and I will bless you. Esau knew what that meant. He knew what that meant. There were spiritual and practical aspects to that blessing. And he'd wanted it his whole life. I'm not sure Esau was so in touch with the spiritual part, but we know that this blessing was the inheritance of the promise on Abraham, then the promise on Isaac. Now Isaac was going to pass that blessing that was for the blessing of all the nations of the earth and the glory of God. He was going to give that to his son. Not sure Esau was in touch with that, but the blessing was all about that. But at a practical level, here's something Esau was really in touch with. That blessing meant he was going to get everything. He was going to own all the land. He was going to own the crops. He was going to own the gold and silver and precious metals. All the wealth that Isaac had built up. And if you read the story, Isaac was very wealthy as his father had been. It meant he would get the servants. It meant he would rule his brothers. He was about to become the head of the estate. He was going to get everything. And as the man of the moment, the man who lived for self-indulgence, the man who lived for pleasure, he couldn't wait. This was the moment he'd been waiting for all of his life. All of his life. So he goes out to hunt his game, but what he didn't know is his mother overheard the conversation. Now, some other time we'll talk about this, but I don't think this was a particularly healthy family here. Rebecca had bonded with Jacob even as Isaac had bonded with Esau, and Rebecca overheard what happened, and and Rebecca didn't want Esau to inherit the estate. And I think, in my own heart, I think there are two reasons for that. It doesn't say it in the text, so I'll just leave this to you to decide. But I think, number one, she remembered the promise of God. You remember, she had a difficult pregnancy, and she asked the Lord, what in the world is all this about? And the Lord told her, listen, there are two nations inside of you, and they're wrestling, and they're trying to overcome one another, and the older is going to serve the younger. The younger is going to dominate the older. Rebecca never forgot that. And I think that she wanted maybe a little bit to help God do what He had promised to do. He wanted the, the Jacob to overcome Esau and inherit the state because of the word of the Lord. The second thing is, she's a mother. You read the end of, uh, I think it's the end of chapter 26, it says clearly, Esau made life a living hell for her. Pardon my French, but it's true. 
It filled Isaac and Rebekah with bitterness for years and years and years. Listen, any mom doesn't want the wild child to inherit the estate, right? We want the responsible one, the one who stayed at home, who took care of business, who was submissive, who listened. We want him to have the estate. And so I think both for spiritual and practical reasons, Rebecca wanted Jacob to get everything, so she comes up with the plot. And she calls Jacob to him and she says, here's what we're going to do. Go out to the, to the farm or whatever, get a couple of rams, bring them in. I know exactly what your father wants. I'll cook them up. You bring it in, pretend that you're Esau, and we'll fool him. And you'll get the blessing. You'll get everything. Jacob says, all right, one problem. My brother's a wild man. You remember he's all hairy like a beast? And uh, Jacob was very smooth-skinned, he said. So I'm not going to be able to fool Dad here. He's going to ask to feel my hands, and he's going to know I'm not my brother. And instead of blessing me, he's going to curse me. And Mom, not particularly in the mood for getting cursed today. Rebecca's dead serious about this whole thing. She said, listen, if he curses you, let that curse be on me. But you're my son. You do as I tell you. You go do exactly what I tell you. Now, I told you last week, I'll show you in further stories. I really don't think Jacob was a mama's boy. I think he was a submissive child. And when his mom said, listen to me, son, you do what I tell you, he did it. And so he went and got those rams. She cooks them up just the way Isaac likes it. She puts clothes on him, Esau's clothes on Jacob, so that he smells like Esau. And then she does a weird thing that shows me that I think Isaac was probably a little senile. She takes the skin of goats and I don't know if they had uh, super glue or something, but somehow she gets it onto Jacob's hands and onto his neck, probably too, so that he didn't feel smooth, but he felt hairy like his brother. What a strange thing to do, but that, that's what she did. And she sent him in there with the wild game. Now, Jacob takes a lot of flack for this story. He's usually blamed for what happened here, but I hope that we can see something clearly. His mother was the mastermind here. His mother was the mastermind. Jacob was submitting to his mother. Now, I'm not saying he wasn't part of the deceit. I'm just saying, let's call a spade a spade. Rebecca also was a deceiver in this situation. So, the ruse was ready. The time was full, and Jacob gulped, ready to be cursed if he had to be cursed, and went in to his father. His father immediately says, My son, who are you? And Jacob tells his first lie, the first of six lies that I count. He says, I'm Esau. And I did what you told me to do. I went and killed the game. I brought it in. And here, here it is. Let's feast together, Father. Isaac's having a hard time believing this a little bit. And so he says, oh, really? So how did this happen so fast? How is it that I just sent you out and you already killed game? Now, Jacob tells a second lie and he invokes the name of God in doing it. It's a serious thing. He says, Father, here's how. God Almighty, your God, blessed me and allowed me to find a, a kill quickly and I got it, cooked it up, and here I am. God did it. Now I think, as I reflected this week, the more I thought about it, I actually don't think Jacob was intentionally using the name of God. By the way, you want to talk about cursing with the name of God? That's cursing. When you use the name of God to tell a lie, that is cursing the name of God. That is dishonoring the name of God horribly. I don't think he intentionally plotted to do that. I think he was nervous. I think he was scared to death. I think that curse that he talked about had a lot of practical implications that meant he'd be cut off of the family and sent away forever. He trembled at that. He did not want that. And I think in the heat of the moment, he panicked and lied. But he invoked the name of God to lie to his father. 
Unfortunately, Isaac bought it. And so Isaac came and asked him. He's still suspicious and he says, All right then, let me feel your skin. Turns out Jacob's fear was founded. He's going to know that my skin is not Esau's skin. Jacob comes near, Isaac feels, and, and Isaac's fooled by it. He says, huh, this shows you how senile he is. He says, wow, it's Jacob's voice, but it's Esau's hands. Something's not matching up here. If, if, if that was me, I'm saying something's not matching up, deal over. But Isaac says, huh, something's not matching up here. Well, I am old. How about we do this? How about let's eat? <laughs> He says, "Who are, now tell me, who are you again? Here's the next lie. I am Esau. He lies to him again. All right then, all right, let's just, let's eat. Let's eat. So Jacob brings him the food. This is a deception now, the fifth deception. He brings him the food. They eat, they drink, they have a good time together, they feast together. Isaac's full, and now he says, all right, one more thing. One more thing, my son. Please come near to me that you may kiss me. And what he wants to do is smell. To see, he knows the smell of his son. Every parent knows the smell of their children. He wants to smell Esau. Jacob comes near. He's got Esau's clothes on. So Jacob smells. And, and that's the thing that puts him over the edge. I don't know if he was still suspicious or not. But one way or another, that's the signal that now allows him to grant the blessing and everything that goes with it that he's been waiting years to grant. And here's what he said. He, four, three or four things here that he bequeathed to his son. I'm not going to read the blessing, but you can look there in verses 27 and following. First of all, he prayed and he blessed Jacob that the favor and the enriching power of God would be upon him. In other words, God had blessed Abraham, God had blessed Isaac. Now he's saying, may that same blessing rest upon you. Isaac had tasted the fruit of that blessing all the days of his life, and he knew what it meant, and now he said, Jacob, may that be yours. Secondly, he granted him the estate. You have to read this carefully. Verse 28 there where he says, you'll, you'll dwell in the fatness of the land and all of that. Look over at verse 37, and you'll see how he interpreted that to his other son, and you'll see what that means is, Isaac gave Jacob everything. He gave him the fat of the land. He gave him the property. He gave him the inheritance. He gave him all the money. He gave him everything. Third thing, he gave him authority over nations, and, and I think that to Jacob probably was a bit abstract at the time. I don't think he quite understood that at the time, but one thing he understood well, he also gave him authority over his brothers. He said, you will have authority over them. They will submit to you. You're the head of the households. You will have authority here as I have had authority here. And fourth, he bequeathed to him those awesome and awful words that God spoke to Abraham. Cursed be everyone who curses you and blessed be everyone who blesses you. Powerful and irrevocable, by the way. I hope we can see that there were very strong spiritual dimensions here and there were also very strong practical dimensions here. Physical, uh, money, monetary kind of dimensions here. Isaac just gave Jacob everything. He gave him everything. And his word, in those days, the word of a man was as powerful as a written notarized contract is in our day, and there was no going back. When the words left his mouth, there's no taking them back. It was a done deal. Jacob had just inherited everything, and there was no way to reverse what had been done. He lavished everything upon him. So Jacob, having completed his deceit, left the room. 
the drama is high because as soon as he leaves the room, Esau comes home. And Rebecca's probably thinking, that, that was about as close as I'd like to see it be. That was very close. Esau cooks up the game. He's so excited. He can't wait because he knows he's about to get everything. And he knows that the old man is dumb. He isn't going to get it. Esau's going to be able to indulge his flesh in ways he's been dreaming of for years. Since I spent so many years of my life as a drug addict, I knew people who, who their parents, pardon me for sounding rude, but they stupidly gave their drug-addicted children their inheritance. And I watched one, two brothers in particular, Jim and Dave were their names, they blew through $80,000 in a year putting it up their nose. I think Esau was like that. He was like, had been dreaming all of his life of indulging in all the riches of his father's property and he couldn't wait. He was about to get everything. So he walks in there, he gives his, his food to his father and his father's like, wait a minute, who are you? And who was that that just came in here and fed me that I blessed them? And he said, and indeed he will be blessed. Esau got what that meant. What that meant was, I blessed him and there's no turning back. Esau got it. Look what it says there. It says that he lifted up his voice and wept bitterly and greatly, exceedingly. Esau wasn't just a little upset or bummed. He he totally came apart because he knew that the dream of his life was over. He had lived his self-indulgent life and now he was about to to reap irreversible consequences. And he knew that to the depth of his soul. He knew that. This is why Hebrews warns us in very strong terms, chapter 12, verses 16 through 17, don't be like Esau. Here's what it says. See to it that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau. The point is self-indulgent and impulsive. Don't be like that. Who sold his birthright for a single meal. That's the one we dealt with last week. But now, for you know that afterward, on this day, here, When he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected for he found no place to repent, even though he sought it with tears. Esau had blown it. He'd thrown everything away in his life and now he felt repentant. Now he wanted to cry. Now he wanted to weep. Now he wanted to pull his hair. Now he wanted to beg. But beloved, it was too late. It was too late. The Bible's warning us, don't be like that. This could be you. Don't play with things that you shouldn't play with because someday, like Esau, you might be cut off and there'll be no way to get back. Read Hebrews 12. You'll see that that's the force of the argument. Don't be like Esau. He had done everything he could do to inherit what he wanted to inherit, but what he found is that his brother had outwitted him. And the way he put it in the ESV at least, they say he cheated him. The Hebrew there literally reads that Jacob struck his heel twice. Struck his heel. Let me see, it's verse 36 there. If you see where it says that, he, behold, he's named Jacob well, Yaakov. For he has Yaakovani, he has cheated me twice. In the Hebrew that literally means he struck my heel twice. I told you last week that in the Hebrew culture the heel is the symbol of power. It's the symbol of if you're under my heel, I have control over you. And if I strike your heel, I'm striking your ability to control me. I'm coming after you. This is about wrestling. It's about supplanting. It's about dominance. 
Jacob did deceive, but the way to think of him is not primarily as a deceiver. Think of him as a supplanter, as a wrestler, as someone who's always trying to get on top of the other. And Esau said, he got me. And he got me twice. He struck my heel twice. He got my birthright. And now he got my blessing. And so Esau knew it was over. He begs uh, Isaac once more. He just says, Father, please, is there no way in the world that you can give me everything? And so Isaac does speak something over him. But man, it's not much. In fact, it's pretty bad news. Let me just tell you how I'm reading the the practical import of what Isaac said to, to Esau. Number one, when he said, you will live away from the fat of the land, you know what I hear that to mean? You gotta leave the family. You have to go away. And that's what happened, by the way. That, that is what happened. Not only for a short time, but Esau's descendants became known as the Edomites, and they forever separated away from Israel. And the Bible talks about the Edomites quite a bit, especially in the prophets. Isaac is telling him, you have, you have to go away from the people of inheritance. And, and he did do that. The point for us is, there comes a time when you lose everything and there's no reversing it. That's the point. I met with a guy this week called Joe Smith. Not the Joseph Smith of the Mormon church. It's a much better Joe Smith. Good friend. He's actually going to play a pastoral role in my life. For the last few years, David Livingston has played that role in my life. But now David's the, the, the campus pastor of the South Campus at Bethlehem Baptist Church. And it's just hard for us to get together. And so now Joe Smith is going to play the role of pastor in my life. And we'll meet on a regular basis. And we were talking about a number of things this last uh, Thursday. And he said something to me that really stuck with me, and it applies to Esau. He said, sin always takes you farther than you want it to take you. It always stays longer than you want it to stay. And it always costs you more than you want it, than you want to pay. Sin takes you farther than you want it to take you. It, it stays longer than you want it to stay. And it costs you more than you want to pay. Esau found out the horror of that sentence. Because it was true. He had sinned and sinned and sinned and sinned and finally he was cut off and that was that. It was over for him. As the dust of these things began to settle, three things took place in a sort of domino fashion. One caused the other caused the other. First of all, Esau in all of his deep bitterness threatened and plotted to kill his brother. He decided when the old man dies, I'm going to whack him. He might be smarter than me, but I'm stronger than him and I'm, I'm going to get him. But he wasn't a very wise guy. Somehow he let his plot get out and his mother found out about the plot. So the second thing that happened is Rebecca persuaded Jacob to go to Haran where her family was from and where Abraham himself was from. And she persuaded Isaac to send him. And Isaac, the old man, now did send him away to Haran to get a wife. And when he went, Isaac sent him with this blessing. If you look there in chapter 28, verses 3 through 4, he bestowed the Abrahamic blessing upon him. God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply that you may become a company of peoples. May He give you the blessing of Abraham to you and to your offspring with you that you may take possession of the land of your sojournings that God gave to Abraham. So here He stated the whole Abrahamic blessing over him except the peace that the nations of the world will be blessed through him. But soon enough, God would speak those words to Jacob himself. So essentially... God gave Abraham a covenant. Abraham passed that on to God. God Himself passed this on to Isaac, I mean. And now this blessing is being passed on to Jacob, not Esau. And with that, He sends him away. 
Third thing that happened is when Esau figures out what will please his father, he finds out that these Canaanite women are not pleasing to his parents. And by the way, whoops, he's married two Canaanite women. Canaanite women. He figures, oh, I know how to get back into the graces of my father. Maybe it's not too late. Here's what I'll do. I'll go marry another woman who's part of my family, and maybe in this way I'll stir my father's affections back up, back toward me, and maybe I'll get something. Maybe I'll get something. To the end of his life, he's grasping to reverse what could not be reversed. And so he went to Ishmael and and married one of Ishmael's daughters. Jacob was going to marry his niece on his mother's side. Uh, Esau said, hey, I'll marry a niece on my father's side. But it didn't work. It did not work. Beloved, the lesson of Esau's life is there comes a day when it really is too late. And Hebrews tells all of us that this warning is upon us. I receive it in my life. I urge you to receive it in yours. Don't play with fire. Don't play with sin. Don't push God and push God and push God and push God. Because at some point, He's going to say, you know what? I'm merciful, but enough is enough. And if you ever hear that from the Lord, it might be too late for you. And God knows He doesn't want to, and I don't want you or me to know what that's really about. Beloved, this story is a tale of two brothers. One received grace from God. The other received judgment from God. But here's the thing. Here's where we get confronted with the fact that God is God and we're not. Neither one of these children deserved the grace that Jacob received. Right? You think Jacob deserved that grace? I don't think so. So all week long, and this is the place where we're just confronted with God does things the way God wants to do them. Confronted with this. All week long I've been asking God, why Jacob and not Esau, Lord? Why? Especially, God chose Jacob over Esau before they were born, before they had done good and evil. God, knowing the future, knowing everything Jacob would do, He chose Jacob over Esau. So what's the answer? Is the answer that God found merit in Jacob? That Jacob was somehow more worthy than than Esau was? That Jacob had done things and said things and God saw things in him that were more righteous and so God chose him? I just don't know how you can read this story and think that that's true. Jacob inherited the amazing covenant promise of God that was going to, and in fact through Jesus Christ did, provide salvation for the nations of the world. He received this inheritance. And you know how he did it? By lying! He deceived his father six times, once even invoking the name of God to lie. That is not a worthy man. So I just cannot go down the train of thought that says God chose Jacob because he was more worthy than Esau. I can't believe it. He was not more worthy than Esau. So here I still feel just stuck with the question, okay, then what then? Why would God choose one over the other? And I'm left to say, you know what? It's a mystery. God chooses who He chooses. He gives grace to who He gives grace. He hardens whom He will harden. He opens a door. Nobody shuts it. He shuts a door. Nobody opens it. Period. He is God. We are not God. Now I know that that makes God sound harsh, unfeeling, merciless, unjust, but that's not true of God. The Bible is very clear to us. God is love. God is holy. God is righteous. God is true. God is good. God is merciful. He's slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. 
This is the character of God always and at all times. No matter what He does, His character is constant. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Amen? He does not change. And so, when He chooses, it's not because He's mean or unfeeling. It's not that. I don't know what it is, but I know it's not that. And what I know is that God is wiser than we are. And He chooses to bestow His salvation on people by grace alone because that's what He chooses to do. And one day, when I get to heaven, I will see what He sees and I will say, God, You did the right thing. I heard a... Asa, thanks for the video from Francis Chan this week. I listened to that. One thing Francis said in that video that really bust me is he said, do you think maybe God has a slightly more developed sense of justice than we do? Just maybe. You think maybe God understands things we don't understand? So maybe He acts in ways we don't understand because we don't understand Him. So rest yourself in His character and know this. He gives grace to whom He gives grace, and He hardens whom He hardens. And in doing that, He is good. He's holy. He's righteous. He's true. So just see Him for who He is. He is great and big. He is God. He does all that pleases Him. Humble yourself before Him. Just humble yourself. I really do feel, in my own life, what I've seen is humility comes before understanding. I humble myself before Him and He helps me understand. And He will you too. But today, I feel that the message is just that. God is God. We are not. Oh, by grace, humble yourself before God. Humble yourself before Him. If He's here, if He's got you here today extending grace to you, that is a real offer. You can respond to His grace. And I pray that if you don't know Him, that today you would choose to know Him. Embrace Him. Let Him pour His grace upon you. Nobody's worthy. If you don't feel worthy, amen, you're right in the right spot. No one's worthy. I was thinking this week about the scandal of forgiveness in my own life. I stand here as a pastor today. I don't know what all of you think about that, but I've wondered this week, what would those mothers think about? The mothers of the kids who I got them started doing drugs when they were 14 and 15 and 16 years old, and I brought years, maybe a lifetime of pain and bitterness into their families. I was, I was a severe drug addict. I was not a recreational guy. At least a third of my friends are dead that I grew up doing drugs with, and I'm not kidding. How do I know that some of these kids that I got started, that they also aren't dead because of what I got them started doing? What would those mothers think if they knew I'm a pastor now? I don't know what they would think. It's a scandal that God would forgive me and use me. I can't believe it. It's just what you said, Kevin. It's just grace, 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 man. It's all grace. That's it. He gives grace to whom He gives grace. He's got you here today, so open your heart and say, yeah, give me that grace. If you're a believer today, I do want to reiterate the warning. Don't be like Esau. Please don't play with fire. I don't have anybody particular in my mind, so please don't think I do. But if you're playing with fire, stop it, man. Just walk away. It's going to end in bad things. Walk away from it. And then another word of exhortation that came from my beautiful wife. Last night we were processing this all together. She was helping me so much process some things that I was having a difficulty with. 
And she said to me, in light of the sovereignty of God, you know what I want to do? And I said, what? She said, I want to make the most of every moment of my life. If God has chosen me to be a vessel of grace, then I want to live everything for His glory. She said to me, I don't want to waste a second of my life. And and first thing I said was, Amen, that's my wife. That's the kind of wife I have. Praise God! Let's not waste a second of our lives for the glory of Him who poured grace upon us. And I just want to encourage you, embrace Him, beloved. Live for Him today. I don't know what your plans are today, but whatever you do, eat, drink, play, go to Birch Lake, whatever, do it all for the glory of God. It's all grace so that He gets all the glory. I pray that that would come true for all of us. Let me pray. Father, I thank You for who You are. I worship You for who You are. And I pray that You would help us to see You for who You are and to submit ourselves to You willingly and lovingly, Father. I pray that we would learn the lesson that humility precedes understanding. And I pray that as we just rest in the fact that You're a great big God, You will show us that Your heart is filled with love for us and others. Oh God, please help us. Please help us. We want to enter into eternal life and pleasures evermore. And the only way is by humbling ourselves before You. So I pray that You would help us, God. Our our spirits are willing. Our flesh is weak. So please, by the power of Christ, help us. And I pray that, Lord, repeatedly, but I pray it with hope because I know that You're eager to help us and I know that You will help us. And so I give You my thanks and my praise. In the mighty name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.